1965, Uruguay. An expert team of Mossad agents is dispatched to execute the man known during the Holocaust as the hangman of Riga, Herbert Zuckers. Survivors of Latvia's Nazi occupation attested to Zuckers' brutality during the war and his part in the murder of tens of thousands. But for 20 years, he remained a fugitive from justice in South America. Did the Mossad complete their mission? Primary sources for this episode include the Times of Israel, Time, Medium, the US Holocaust Memorial Foundation, Yad Vashem, The Guardian, the CIA and the Simon Wiesenthal Centre. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 159 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Sorry, my blinds were just rattling um, when I was recording those sources because it's quite windy and even with everything shut, wind like gets in under the door and stuff and it was like rattling them. So I hope that I have got rid of that. I'd like to welcome new patron Amelia since the last episode. Thank you for coming on board. So many of you really enjoyed um, the deep dive into the Richie Edwards disappearance and I felt because there wasn't a lot of resolution with that case, it was high time for one that, that had definitive resolution I suppose. So I am finally getting to a patron Michelle's location request. Um, it's been a while coming, sorry Michelle. But this case will take us to two continents, actually three when you think about it, maybe even more. So Michelle um, is from Galway in Ireland and one of her choices when she became a patron quite a while ago uh, was a Baltic country, uh, one of the countries that falls into the Baltic region in Europe. Uh, she also loved the Irma Gresser episodes and she like loves Holocaust history and learning about it. So I knew that this case was would be perfect for her. And normally I wouldn't put two, the stories of two Nazis so close together. But in this instance, I'm, I'm going to because I've wanted to tell the story of a proper hunt for a Nazi for quite a while now. Um, and this Nazi we are hunting today, much like Irma Gresser, who many of you hadn't heard of, is not a well-known name, unless, of course, you have seen the epic Nat Geo show Nazi Hunters, which I've talked up many times. Granted, they only have like 40-minute episodes and they squeeze in quite a lot, so I've gone a bit deeper than if you've seen that episode, which I believe is the very first episode of season one that they did, the story of Herbert Zuckers. Now, yes, if you're looking at the description or the title of this show, which luckily you did, it looks like his name is pronounced Cookers or Cookers, uh, his surname, but it's actually pronounced Zuckers, uh, just to clarify that. Now, if you have watched Nazi Hunters, you will know that the story of Herbert Zuckers not only was, I think, the first ever episode of the show, which Nacho just makes the best shows, Nazi Hunters is in a league of its own. I've watched documentaries on Zuckers, but none of them, they all pale in comparison to the production of Nazi Hunters and how it just gets you into every single episode. It's just an incredible show. And obviously they make the show Locked Up Abroad, I believe, which is one of my favourite shows ever. And their production value with Nat Geo shows is just a cut above. And obviously if you've seen that episode, you will probably remember it. Um, it is probably the most action-packed episode and it introduces us 
firsthand to a Mossad agent who was responsible for not one but two executions of Nazis on that show. More on that later. He was like a crack Mossad agent who has recently, well not recently, a few years ago died and to me he was a hero. This episode, I hope it gives you some sort of takeaway that no matter how long somebody doesn't have justice for, how many years tick by, it may come when you least expect it from the people and in a way where you least expect it. And that goes for Nazi hunters in general. Not only was this group, in my opinion, an incredible group that did the right thing, I'll say that from the outset, uh, when the the powers that be would not, it introduced us, particularly on Nazi hunters, to other amazing Nazi hunters like Simon Wiesenthal, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him. He is very well known. I believe he has died now. He has the Simon Wiesenthal Centre still exists. He single-handedly tracked down so many Nazis after the war that escaped justice in the traditional sense. He had a lot of contacts within the Mossad, as well as a really just cool couple that you'll remember from the show, uh, the Klaasfelds, who were uh, a French couple who made it their mission after the war to track down some of the worst offenders who were just out there living their lives. And from memory, the episode on Klaus Barbie goes into the Klaasfelds and they were just uh, just the coolest couple. Um, so while putting this together, the movie Munich came to mind. It was really my what came to mind because it's a very loosely factual, and I will say that I've it is a touchstone for the Mossad and kind of their Nazi hunting efforts post World War Two. Munich, if you don't know or haven't seen it, tells the story, which is a true story, of the nineteen seventy two Munich Olympics massacre where Palestinian terrorists took Israeli athletes and their coaches hostage in the athletes' village. Germany does not have a good history with uh, the Olympics. First they had the Nazi Olympics in Berlin during Hitler's reign and then they had this happen at the Munich Olympics in 1972. Um, And I, of course, have always had that on my list to do, the Munich Olympics, and I will do it because... During the putting together of this episode, I I just decided I wanted to go and deep dive a little bit into what happened with the Munich Olympics for a couple of reasons um, and to refresh my memory. Um, And in short, if you're not familiar, that story does not have a happy ending. Many people died, athletes, coaches and the Palestinian terrorists. The hostage negotiation uh, to get the Israeli hostages back was a complete fuck up and they call it the Munich massacre for a reason and it all happened against the backdrop of a televised Olympics that just kept going and these days I don't think it would but in 1972 they just kind of they're being held in an athlete's village with the world's cameras on them you can watch footage of the terrorists at the windows with these hostages and standing on the rooftops and there's some famous pictures you'll see where they've got the ski mask pulled over their heads which kind of became the face of the 1972 olympics sadly and it just kept going like a lot of athletes just kept on doing their events meanwhile in the athletes village this is going on uh, a terrorist attack in broad daylight on the world stage 
And I guess every year since, they've kind of thought every four years they, they up the security with the Olympics because this could totally happen again. So in the fallout of this, uh, the Mossad set up a team of operatives to hunt down and execute those still alive who had played a role in the Munich Olympics attack. And they called this Operation Wrath of God. And the very the movie Munich very loosely shows the fallout of that and the hunt by the Mossad to to find these operatives um, across a number of different countries and continents and, and to kill them, essentially. Um, the truth is a, is a little bit different from what's depicted in the movie. Also, the movie, the two leads are like both Melburnians, Eric Banner and Jeffrey Rush, playing Mossad agents with Israeli accents, but they got a claim and they're pretty cool. It was critically acclaimed, nominated for Oscars, and today people still love that movie. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, who is obviously Jewish and has made movies that touch on the topic of the Holocaust as well, like Schindler's List. But many reviews point out that he actually managed to walk a line a fine line without as much as we know that his um, sensibilities will fall on the side of the Israelis and most of the worlds did at the time because these athletes were innocent and just just wrestlers and track athletes and the like. He managed to walk a fine line making that movie without really pointing the finger or coming down too hard on either side. And from memory, even though I've only seen it a couple of times and it was years ago, I don't remember walking away thinking... I feel like I'm trying to be indoctrinated by Steven Spielberg. He's He really is a master director when you think about it um, and he's kind of made so many movies that have impacted our lives. But I was reading reviews of Munich at the time that it came out and, and one caught my eye because of its title and the title was Justice or Vengeance and essentially it discussed in whether or not Operation Wrath of God was an act of justice or an act of vengeance um, and it got me thinking because that can be applied to this episode too. Gandhi obviously said an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. That's one of his famous quotes, um, which means, you know, that if everybody acts in an eye for an eye mentality, um, then we're not going to get anywhere. But on the flip side of that, can you just let these people walk the earth with no repercussions? We've seen what happens when that happens. You know, the Bali bombers get out to a massive kind of um, people cheering for them when they get out of out of prison. And uh, one of the uh, the Munich Olympics guys, when he was sent sent back to Palestine, and I'll talk about that as part of a um, basically a deal. Um, a prisoner swap deal, which is part of that story. You know, he he got back there as like a national hero for what he'd done. And and when can you just let these people walk the earth with no repercussions? When the police forces or kind of the world courts um, or the international justice commissions are just are not doing anything in a lot of countries are just letting them live their lives, which is what happened in a lot of South American countries post-World War II, where a lot of Nazis, a huge amount, fled to after the war and were able to live relatively comfortable lives. Granted, a lot of them were deeply paranoid, like Mengele, and I believe like Zuckers. Uh, they were always looking over their shoulder. Eichmann is another one. 
but they were generally able to just go on, run businesses. They There was a big German population. A lot of them still were friendly with each other. And how and can we allow that when the victims are just left behind in the dust? And in my view, and maybe this makes me an anarchist, but to me, no, um, we can't. And to me, both stories, the Munich Olympics of 1972 and um, the Nazi hunters under the Mossad, they straddle both sides. It's justice for their victims and vengeance for what they were able to do uninhibited. If you, I was thinking, if one person was out there, you know, who, who hadn't committed atrocities in a time of war, say Jeffrey Dahmer killed 30,000 people and he was just out there, but he'd moved to Uruguay and he was just running a business and living, living fine. Everyone knew where he was, but no one was acting on it. They'd feel differently because it didn't happen un- during a war. <laughs> They'd be the whole world would be like, we have to get these guy, this guy. But I feel like because things happen in a war context and it's more of a well, a whole group did that. He was part of a group mentality. There was a bit more of a lax response to this, especially hunting them twenty, thirty, forty years after the fact, and they're still doing it. But Herbert Zucker's, if you believe the thousands of people who bore witness to what he did is responsible for around 30,000 murders, which would make him one of the most prolific serial killers of all time, just like most of the Nazis are. And he was able to just walk away. He was able to move his whole family to South America, keep his name and run a business. Granted, like Mengele, he was not living the high life or like Eichmann, they were living quite low, low on money, quite paranoid, but he was still free in 1965, 20 years after the war ended, when many of his counterparts had been executed or imprisoned by then. Many saw this as an affront to justice when so many Nazis were living freely in South America, nobody coming for them, while the survivors of their atrocities who had to bear witness to it were still picking up the pieces for the rest of their lives back in Europe. Irma Gressa did not run away. She faced justice and even though she's just a mega cow, um, she went to her death pretty set in her ways and Herbert Zuckers did not. And they are kind of two sides of the same fucked up coin. But at 21, it seemed that Irma Gressa at least held her head high and believed what she believed and she didn't run away, if you remember, in Bergen-Belsen. Herbert Zuckers ran away with his tail between his legs um, much like a lot of the Nazis, you know, males, which were the majority, and suddenly decided that wasn't me or it was me but it was a different version of me or that wasn't – or even tried to kind of infiltrate themselves into Jewish communities post-war in order to gain some sort of sympathy. Um, and at least Irma Gressa didn't waste the time of those around her and didn't do that. But strangely, I feel more content with the end Herbert Zucker's got than the end that Irma Gressa got. I feel more content with the vigilante one. Um, And I don't know why and I can't put my finger on it. But to begin, before I tell the story of the hunt for him, I have to go back to the other side of the world to begin our tale. To the country of Latvia, in Europe, in a region called the Baltics, which is why I chose this for Michelle's episode. And to its capital, um, Riga. 
We have not been to the small country of Latvia before, but when Michelle requested a Baltic country, I knew I'd do this case. Latvia is in the area of the Baltics, perched on the Baltic Sea, with Estonia and Lithuania as neighbours. Riga, the capital, is positioned right on the Baltic Sea, and when you look at pictures of it, it is just unbelievable. Just Google Riga or Old Town Riga. It is just impossibly colourful and beautiful. And every week I put up a hint for my patrons to guess where we're going for the next episode. And most this week were surrounding Riga, you know, Latvia. They were, you know, um, somewhere in the Baltics or in Europe thinking it was Germany. But it's so every building, much like pots of Krakow, it's, it's just... It's just beautiful. The scenery, um, the architecture, just the colours. It it's like it's it's so different and so beautiful. And you can see why more and more people um are intrigued with Riga as countries like the Czech Republic that used to be dirt cheap for tourists to go to aren't so much anymore. They tend to go more east and Riga is becoming or the Baltic countries are becoming more and more popular and Latvia is one of them. But it is a western port city in Latvia that our story begins and it was actually one of the first cities that was taken under Nazi occupation and comes up again and again in survivors' accounts when you watch them and I've watched a lot on Yad Vashem, which thankfully before a lot of the survivors died, documented on video their their memories of the Holocaust in different parts of Europe, in different parts of the world. And... I watched a lot of these and a lot of them revolve around this city and Riga. So this city is called Lepaya, but a lot of people call it Lebao. Um, that's kind of how it comes up in how to pronounce it properly. It's about two hours west of Riga. Um, and when I wrote this exact sentence, it was a chilly zero degrees Celsius. So freezing over there at the moment. And this city is where our antagonist and the subject of our episode, Herbert Zuckers, came into the world on May 17th, 1900, just after a new century dawned. When Herbert Albert Zuckers came into the world, I very much doubt his parents thought he would earn the nicknames in his lifetime of the Hangman of Riga or the Butcher of Latvia. It always kind of blows my mind when I see pictures of just terrible people from history when they were babies. You can look at pictures of Adolf Hitler when he was a baby and you think that baby became one of the worst people in world history. And I often kind of mull over, were they born that way? Were, you know, these genetics brewing that would make them a crazed psychopath or were they mage you know and that's the age-old argument the Latvia that Herbert Zuckers was born into was in a pivotal time granted it had been in a pivotal time for centuries Latvians had historically seen war famine and plague half the residents of Riga were actually killed during the plague over a one-year period from 1710 to 1711, half of the population. The only other place I can think of that actually was hit that hard was I know Florence in Italy from a history podcast I listened to lost like the majority of their population. Unfortunately for those in Latvia and Riga, this plague fell during what was called the Great Northern War. So the country was already in turmoil when the plague hit. 
Now, in 1795, Latvia was annexed by Russia and they became part of the Russian Empire. But at the time, German was actually the national language, although I believe that a lot of Latvians for a long time could speak Russian, German, and then Latvian had a bit of a resurgence with people starting to speak the national language again. The early 1800s in Latvia was a difficult time. Serfs or peasants were, quote-unquote, relieved of their land. (laughs) Yeah, uh, which does not mean you're just relieved of it. Um, And wealthy landowners and nobility ruled. And now the serfs that actually were able to own land suddenly had to work on what was once their land that they'd received no compensation for. But it was during this that Latvia's economy began to boom. Riga became the largest port in the Russian Empire due to its important location on the Baltic Sea. Latvian ports were essential, including in Lapaya, the second city which Herbert Zuckers was born into. Um, They had this boom where schools and universities were opened and built, new railways were built, factories were built and um, the industrial kind of revolution started, which in turn created jobs. And if you visit Riga today, much of its beautiful old town from this particular time is still, you can still see it today, which is what I was talking about earlier. By the mid to late 1800s, Latvian nationalism grew. Latvia, um, Latvian became widely spoken again um, and leftist social agendas kind of began. And this was the Latvia that Herbert Zuckers was born into in 1900. Not much is written uh, kind of about his, his early life, um, but I do know that he had two Latvian parents and um, according to most genealogy websites, one brother Uh, Theodore's or, you know, Theodore in English. But in 1914, when the First World War kicked off, Herbert was obviously a teenager and he was at the right age to witness this war and later another war. Uh, Latvia was devastated during the First World War and this was obviously followed by those on this side of Europe by the Russian Revolution, which we've talked about on on the Russian episodes with Alexei Navalny in depth in 1917. Um, And this created quite a massive power vacuum. And in this, Latvia was deemed its own independent country and they put a prime minister in charge of Latvia. And Latvia was now independent and on its own. Its economy grew, things were looking good, and more people owned land during this time than ever before. But then the Great Depression hit in the late 1920s, and by this point, Herbert Zuckers is, you know, in his late 20s. Um, He's settling down, he's getting married, he's having a family. Now, earlier than that, Herbert's education, and I'm going to call him Herbert, I don't want to call him Herb, seems a bit more, seems too casual, but also uh, my Gramps' brother was called Herb and he was a really nice guy who actually fought on the good side during the war. So I don't want to muddy, I don't want to confuse the two in, in my mind. <laughs> so Herbert Zuckers attended the Latvian Military School, which today is known as the Latvian Defence Academy of Latvia. And obviously, um, as this offers a lot of opportunities for skills, it still does joining kind of any defence force. And I don't believe, even though he came from kind of a middle-class family, 
and as much as I don't know this for sure, I kind of was thinking that the Latvian military school gave Herbert Zuckers a lot of the skills and education he needed to do what he would do later on. And by that, I mean before the war where he actually became a national celebrity of sorts. So by this time, Herbert Zuckers was a grown man and he had achieved acclaim across Latvia as a long-distance pilot at a time when people really idolised pilots. Um, Amelia Earhart, which I will do her story at some point, I've got her coming up in the next few months, um, Charles Lindbergh, and Europe was looking for their own and they found that in Latvian pilots, uh, Herbert Zuckers, which is an important thing to note just how how well known he was um, because deniers later on will say, well, how did people only identify Herbert Zuckers as doing these horrible things in Riga and Latvia during the war? Well, it's kind of the equivalent of Amelia Earhart going back to, um, I think she was from Kansas originally. Um, imagine Kansas had a Holocaust and um, Amelia Earhart was front and centre killing people. Uh, people would identify Amelia Earhart as doing that. Now, I doubt she didn't take part in that. From all I know, she was a lovely person who you know, should have had a really nice end as an accomplished old lady, you know, but but she didn't. But that's why we know because Herbert Zuckers was a celebrity in Latvia. Flying was his great love. It was a central part of his life. That's what he learned at the Latvian military school. And he received medals and accolades for it. And he would do international solo flights in the 1930s in planes that he made himself. He wasn't a dummy. He made like he was a traditional man's man, good with his brain, but good with his hands. He built like three of his own aircraft that were cobbled together with like bits and pieces. And one of them, he flew 45,000 kilometers to Japan, China, and there was somewhere else on his itinerary that I can't remember. And this was in the plane that he built and he won an award for that. He also designed a dive bomber and he did multiple kind of long distance flights in these that in the time when Amelia Earhart was trying to break a record for long distance flights, it's in the early days kind of of aviation. Um, you've got Charles Lindbergh who had made a name for himself doing this. And then Herbert Zuckers comes along and he flew from Latvia to Gambia in Africa at one point. Um, and he flew from Latvia to Tokyo as well as a number of other places as well. And he also flew Latvia to Palestine at one point, And he actually earned the name the Latvian Lindbergh. To describe Herbert Zuckers, patron Melissa really nailed it with Irma Gressa saying she looked like Elizabeth Moss. Every single person were like, was like, oh my God, she's identical. It's actually crazy. I wonder if Elizabeth Moss has ever seen it. I don't have an exact kind of person to compare him to. He's he's a really good looking guy. He really is. Um, in comparison to like Irma Gress's boyfriend, who was not, um, she would have been madly in love with with Herbert Zuckers for sure if she'd ever crossed paths with him, but she didn't. Um, I initially I thought he looked like this. Is going to sound really strange. Crispin Glover, who I love, such a weird actor. Uh, with maybe a lot more muscle on him. And then I thought, actually, I'm going to throw an Aussie in the ring because I initially thought Chris Hemsworth 
But I actually was like, no, it's not Chris, it's Liam. He looks like the younger one, you know, the one that was married to Miley Cyrus. So I'm going with a love child of Crispin Glover and Liam Hemsworth. But I'd like you to look at his picture because there's a lot. I'll put them in Patreon. But the main Spotify episode picture, I just talked for hours and hours. Not really hours and hours, but like 20 minutes and realised it wasn't recording after that. I just stopped recording and I had so many thoughts but basically it ended where I was wrapping up the Crispin Glover Liam Hemsworth love child angle and in most of his pictures he's actually like he's in his military uh, uniform his later pictures he's in casual stuff when he's an older guy Um, and he looks very kind of distinguished and and things like that Um, in 2020, there was a journalist and author, Stefan Tolti, who released a book called The Good Assassin, The Mossad's Hunt for the Butcher of Latvia, unquote. And this is all about the hunt, the multi-country hunt for Herbert Zuckers. And he spoke to the Times of Israel in 2020 while he was on a book promo tour. And he said something that I really firmly agree with. Um, He said, quote, I actually found myself admiring the pre-war Zuckers. He was very much the kind of adventurer who not only built his own planes but dreamed up these kind of bizarre trips and odysseys, unquote. And it's kind of what I was thinking, you know, this guy in another time or place, maybe if he was born an American, um, maybe he, he would have fought on the good side. I mean, or maybe he would have been an adventurer like Charles Lindbergh and led a quiet life, you know, later on, or maybe he would have died being a national hero. But I started to think, was he born this way? Like all of them. That's the age-old question. Like with Irma Gressa, was he born this way? And it was just a catalyst and something had to ignite this psychosis within them. Was he was he always this way, but it was covered up? He's, he's kind of a contradiction in the sense that uh, Wilhelm Hosenfeld, who is depicted in the movie The Pianist, is a contradiction. And one day I'm going to do an episode on Wilma Hosenfeld because he's a contradiction in the sense that he he went through kind of the whole war without seemingly killing anyone directly and would continually help Jewish people. He was a teacher, he was an educator before the war broke out and he was kind of a, um, a bit of a, like, Irma Gress's father, you know, a... a hesitant Nazi, I suppose. Um, when you read, um, I've ordered a book about him and I've read a lot about him. Um, but then you get people like Herbert Zuckers who actively, who actively act with zeal, um, at the events that are going to unfold with like supreme enjoyment, like a aggressor. And you think, no, this isn't just because you're part of a group and you're swept up in a pack mentality. This is because something within you is really enjoying this. Um, and does that make you a psychopath? Does it, I don't know what they're, what you'd describe them as. Um, but I don't think that Herbert Zuckers was a reluctant Nazi or a reluctant paramilitary Nazi in any sense of the word. I think I think he was waiting for a moment like this and it just so happened that he was an intelligent guy who was really who was a national hero and, you know, it it is like if Amelia Earhart just was a psycho the whole time and we just didn't know it. So in May nineteen thirty four A coup was staged in Latvia and it became a nationalist dictatorship that lasted until 1940. And then 
World War II started in the midst of this. And so it's been constant kind of upheaval and turmoil in Latvia and these constant ups and downs. And, you know, a lot of you will have grandparents or, or great grandparents who survived two world wars. You know, they're from parts of Europe that between these world wars, there were power vacuums, there were coups. And you just never get a chance. There's no chance to decompress. It's just one thing after another. Um, and the Soviets would occupy Latvia initially during World War Two, at least for the first year. So Latvia, the Latvia that was nationalist and starting to speak Latvian again and kind of finding this national identity and booming on its own was Latvia no longer. Six years later, after the coup happened, before World War Two happened, um, in December 1939, just as the war had broken out, Herbert Zuckers had returned from another flight uh, that had achieved kind of national acclaim, not just in Latvia but beyond. Um, people knew who he was. This was this is discussed in the Times of Israel, and I found it very interesting um, because most sources paint a picture of the Herbert Zuckers who not only tolerated Jewish people but actively befriended them. And this is why I think it gives way to people who say he wasn't as bad as what history maintains he is, which I'll talk about, albeit not in great detail, because they it's just so many blank spots in these denialists' theories that I've always struggled with, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so he had gone to Palestine on this particular trip. It was 4,667 kilometres flight in one of the planes that he had made himself. And while in Palestine, um, Palestine, they had a bit of an expat community of Latvian Jews living in Palestine. Um, and he would speak at the Riga Jewish Club's one of their get-togethers in Palestine um, and he would travel like across Israel as well and like Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Bethlehem and one of a young Jewish man who had actually seen Zucker speak at this Riga Jewish Club's get-together said later on, quote, I remember Zucker speaking with wonderment, amazement, even enthusiasm of the Zionist enterprise in Israel, unquote. The Times of Israel wrote, quote, this was not the only indication that his fierce nationalism and occasional anti-Semitic remarks aside, Zuckers was, as one Latvian Jew later put it, not really considered a Jew hater. He was, for instance, often seen with Jewish intellectuals in Riga's cafes, of unquote, which is something that I just never heard. Um, and I have quite a broad knowledge of different Nazis. I'd I'd never come across this where survivors would openly say, oh, yeah, I'd been to his house, I, I knew him for 10 years. Um, this is another thing that the, the denialists just ignore completely, that people who had befriended him, you know, 10 years before the war broke out, would speak out against him and he would say they'd have an alternative agenda when how could they when they knew him? They're just telling the truth of this descent into fucking madness or pack mentality or whatever you want to call it. But I personally walk away thinking Herbert Zuckers had no sense of who he was. I think he could have, with his ranking, could have walked away at any point in time. Um, he was in an organisation later on, which I'll talk about, which was a volunteer organisation. You were not 
enlisted, so to speak. He could walk away at any time. He could have with his planes, like he was just in Israel, he could have claimed some sort of political asylum. He was there after the kind of the outbreak of war. He could have, you know, defected to the right side of history, but he didn't. And that's what makes me think that Herbert Zucker's like really made the decisions he made. Um, but of course, when war broke out and they were under Soviet occupation, someone like Herbert Zucker's with his name and his skills and his acclaim would be in hot demand for his skills with planes. And the Soviets soon summoned him to Moscow in Russia, and he was tasked with building planes for the Soviet Union. So how is this a Nazi hunters type episode if Herbert Zucker's was a Soviet accessory? Well, I'm not there yet because a year after the Soviet occupation of Latvia, in 1941, the Nazis occupied Latvia. Now, throughout this, I'm going to play you a few clips from courtesy of Yad Vashem. Um, you can openly read these. It's an amazing resource and I'm so glad they videoed these people and spoke to them about their memories because most of them are gone now, including this woman. Um, so when I go on Yad Vashem and I search, it's just a never-ending never-ending treasure chest of interviews, documents. It's incredible what you can get. Um, these historical documents of lists of Jewish people um, determined to be sent to Auschwitz, everything you can possibly think of. And when you narrow it down to Latvia, because it's such a broad database, you just get so many interviews uh, with people who, you know, discuss the occupation of, of Latvia, life in the Riga ghetto, and I'm going to play you a few of those because I think it's really important to to hear it from people. And the first one I'm going to play you is Holocaust survivor Sigrid Quick. When interviewed, obviously, in like what, you know, they don't have dates on it, but I believe it's probably like the 70s or 80s. Um, she describes um, the first week of German occupation of the, the city of Lipaya, which is also where Herbert Zuckers was from, one of the first places to be occupied in Latvia by the Nazis. And she talks about how it was occupied and how um, she had just got married and she was only married for a month when her husband was taken away. So this is Sigrid Quick talking. Um, I've obviously picked out ones where people are speaking English and there's no subtitles. So there's quite a lot out there if you want to go and watch them that have subtitles as well. 1941, the Germans came in. What was your first sight of the first sight? Now, the beginning, it was actually the day I got married on June the 22nd. Um, then we heard the first bombardments. We weren't quite sure what it was. We thought it was Russian maneuvers because they were all the time going and blackouts we had all the time. And like training blackout. But when we heard the bombing we didn't quite know what it was. We thought it was maneuvers. But in the early morning we were told that it was war. And that war lasted for a week, seven days. And Liba was very heavily bombarded. The Germans had the Stukas planes, I don't know if you know them. And they came down and they burned particularly the Jewish areas. I met my husband in the youth organization. We've been friends for a long time. We brought our marriage forward because of the war, because we thought we might be parted. But then the war brought out just then and it 
a month later, he was already taking away by the Germans. And uh, can of you course, tell me about your marriage, where it took place, and the sort of wedding? Well, it was a wartime wedding. It was not what you imagine now a nice big wedding. We went and had our chupa. We came home and had a nice meal with family and friends. And that was it. A week later, we had already lost my brother and my husband because they were arrested and they were marched off and they were they were shot, they were killed. How did you know what happened to them? We saw them being arrested, we saw them being rounded up, we saw them being marched away. And uh, rumours came later to what happened to them. They came from the Latvians and they came from the Germans themselves because we worked with Germans, we were guarded by Germans. And they just told us what happened. In three days, they rounded up roughly 3,000 Jewish men and children, boys. Now, at the time, which you hear um, quite a lot, especially with the Soviet occupation post-war of certain countries. I heard this when I when I was on a tour in Budapest, actually. Um, according to the Times of Israel, quote, some of Zucker's fellow countrymen viewed the Nazis as liberators, a view not shared by their terrified Jewish neighbours, unquote. So they thought that the Nazis were going to liberate them from the Soviets, but the Jews had seen the writing on the wall, obviously, and and not all of them had been able to get out, like only a small percentage had um, pre-war to Israel and other countries. So within hours of the occupation of Latvia, the Germans took control of the Latvian press and the radio, and they used that to their full advantage. Um, they used to call it control of information. And they started to use this to push their propaganda uh, that the Jewish people of Latvia were, quote unquote, the enemy within. Um, and using kind of Latvian nationalism to their advantage, they would put out the the kind of story that the Jews had betrayed Latvia to the Soviets um, and, you know, trying to get the every man on board, I suppose. And sadly, this works on a lot of people. Um, so one newspaper wrote, quote, no pity and no compromise shall be shown. No Jewish tribe of adders must be allowed to rise again, unquote. That's from a newspaper. So... And they did not show any pity. Um, quote, Riga became a pen where Jews were hunted for sport and profit and Herbert Zuckers was an enthusiastic player in the game. Um, and that's from Tulti who wrote the 2020 book on the hunt for Herbert Zuckers who did a massive amount of research into this. Um, and you never hear about Latvia. Well, you do, but it's not often talked about in comparison to say Poland or or Germany under under the war but when you go to places like Auschwitz and and concentration camps you realize just how many countries um you know were affected by this how many people were shipped out from from Greece from Latvia from Ukraine um to Auschwitz or concentration camps or 
in the other way, how many were shipped from the west to the east? For instance, the Riga ghetto, quite a lot of Germans, Austrians, you can watch their testimonies, were shipped to Riga, um, kind of shipped east. So this is why when Herbert Zuckers got involved in the hunting of Jews for sport and profit in Latvia, then he was easily recognised by so many because, as I've told you, he was a national celebrity. And this is unfortunately where denial of him being involved comes into play. Um, And I sadly had to read a piece by an actual history professor who for some reason, was able to have this published on the Holocaust website for Latvia. Um, He's from Ithaca University and this is titled Massad Killed an Innocent Man. And I had to include it because you obviously have to look at all sides. Um, And so I read it, but I came across the same thing that I do with any Holocaust denialists, David Irving and the like. The when you watch them speak and you're looking for actual meat on the bone, you're looking for actual evidence, they never give it to you. They only have a kind of skirt over it or refer to it. And um, this is a topic that's interested me for years. I Holocaust denialism is illegal in many countries, including Australia, for instance. So I, if I was ever to do a podcast just about it, I, I could, you know, be arrested and charged with, with a crime. So I'd never be able to do that, but I can comment on it. But I have listened to podcasts of people who live in places who tackle the topic, places where they're allowed to. For instance, I listened to an Irish podcast that did a whole kind of multi-parter on it. And again, after six hours of this series, I walked away thinking, yeah, but where's the, what are you telling me? Like there's no meat on the bone. David Irving is like casually just lost his mind over and over and over again. And he gets, he kind of gets people who can't kind of think for themselves on board with this. Um, While I agree that there's a lot of kind of world um, organisations that kind of are not acting in our best interests, I don't believe that this didn't happen um, because it would mean that a lot of people, millions, um, just suddenly disappeared into thin air, like in a Stephen King novel or something. Um, It would mean... (laughs) I just can't even get into the number of things it would mean. Millions of people were on the same page um, about things that happened, describing places. Um, You know, there's Holocaust denialists who say that the camps were made after the war. I think this is one of David Irving's big things. The Americans built the camps after the war, yada, yada, yada. But again, all of all of this stuff is just empty. It's pointless. And this guy who's like he's Latvian, but he's now American and, you know, uh, sadly, a historical professor, um, his name's um, Andrevez. He wrote, and I'm just going to read you a segment of this, where he he essentially writes that Herbert Zuckers never did anything, um, and if he did, uh, <laughs> he essentially writes that everyone's a liar or or it wasn't Herbert Zuckers. I'm going to read it to you. Quote, The only accusations about Zuckers as the butcher of Riga come from surviving Hebrews who wanted to find an explanation for the tragedy of their people. But there are multiple problems with their testimony. In the first place, they lack information about Holocaust internal organisation and methods of destruction. They had no knowledge about the Latvians who did the shooting. Many of them believed that the killing of Hebrews in Latvia was improvised on the spot and did not follow an organised plan. 
The majority of those survived could not name one shooter except Zuckers, unquote. Um, yeah, because he was a he was a celebrity um, that people identified, uh, but they didn't know everyone because there's not um, 10 people living in Latvia at the time. The population was a little bit bigger than that, so it's likely they didn't know their names. You can basically, when you get into this story, pick apart every single thing he said and destroy it with about 25 facts. Um and I don't know kind of where he gets off because I've even, there's even CIA documents <laughs> that talk about Herbert Zuckers. Now, granted, in 2006, the Latvian government actually, 40 years after Herbert Zuckers died, they actually opened an investigation into whether Herbert Zuckers committed atrocities during the war now. 2006 and the war ended in 1945, dragging their feet a tiny little bit, uh, which always kind of lands me on the side of they just didn't want to face the fact that kind of one of their national heroes was actually a psychopath. But I'm just wanted to start out by saying that because someone will say to me, oh, people say Zuckers was innocent. I'm attacking this from the um, what I believe and what thousands upon thousands of people saw. You can read so many testimonies um, about Herbert Zuckers, what people saw, people who saw. And you also can smack down what that historian just said because the certain people who testified against Herbert Zuckers in his absence when he had fled by this point, who had known him for a decade. So it's not like they're just confusing him with someone else. Um, I guess his attitude is, oh, it could, it could have been anyone. They just thought it was Herbert Zuckers. Maybe he looked like him or whatever. Um, I believe that this guy who wrote this, like most of his stuff that he wrote in this piece, like reeks of overall Holocaust denialism, which is like, fucked up um but I don't want to get into that topic um now because I want to play you um another Yad Vashem video um the audio from it this is a holocaust survivor Max Solway by the time he was interviewed he was an older man but he came from the the city of um Lapaya which is where Herbert Zuckers was from and where a lot of the original Nazi occupation happened. They would set up ghettos in this city. And initially, according to a couple of Yad Vashem kind of videos, survivors said that the, the ghettos that they were forced into in this city weren't as bad as later on when they would be forced into the capital Riga, into the Riga ghetto, because one woman in particular said that her children played in the Lapaya ghetto with with a Nazi's children um, and that he seemed okay, this particular one. But it was when they got to the Riga ghetto and they essentially liquidated the ghetto and things really, the ante was really upped and a lot of massacres happened and the population, the Jewish population of Riga was severely thinned out through, you know, massacres which are very well known today. Um, that was when things changed, you know, and they got their orders from above to essentially just wipe out the entire population. Um, and that would be through a paramilitary group who worked alongside the Nazis um, in Latvia, which I'll talk about in a bit. But this is Holocaust survivor Max Solway. He, on his 13th birthday, his father was murdered. He was having his bar mitzvah with his family in 1941. Um, and he's they came and um, took his father away and killed him out the front of their house. Now, 
the group that's responsible for this, when you read about the Latvian Holocaust um, during the Second World War, this is a group called the RS Commando. Now, this was a fully volunteer paramilitary group that Herbert Zuckers was a higher up in. And they were essentially volunteers, a lot of them young men, um, whose sole purpose was to round up the Jewish population of Latvia and, and murder them. So essentially the Nazis could just sit back and allow the Latvians um, to kill each other. And that's how it worked in a lot of countries. Um, it was led by a man called Victor Aris and it was hundreds of of members and most people put Herbert Zuckers as like the number two behind Victor Aris. Uh, so I'm going to play you this accounting from Yad Vashem from Max Solway. Go to the Cheder and I used to learn after in the Cheder and the rapper was Rabbi Michelson. This is Cheder I used to go to learn by after from my Bar Mitzvah. Uh, when was your bar mitzvah due to? The 31st of July. Was everything organised for the synagogue and Everything was pretty organised, yes. And uh, the 31st of July, the one is, uh, Latvian came in with a pistol and a, and a, a, a nagaika, what do you call it, nagaika, a, a stick. Was he in uniform? He was in uni Latvian uniform, yes. Let was it Latvian army? Latvian uh, SS, uh, Latvian uh, ISARC, if we used to call them, in that uniform. And he used to uh, got the whole family and he said uh, to my father, uh, you have to come with me. And he took my father out of the house, in front of the house, and he shot him. And he puts a dead body on a on a droshke, you know, on a horse carriage, and they went, he went off. That was the last I saw my father. That was my bar mitzvah. That was the 31st of July. What year? In 1942, 41, 42. When did the Russians came in, in our place? You said it was your bar mitzvah. You were born in what year? I'm born in the uh, 31st of July, 1928. And so your bar mitzvah would have been when you were 13? But I was 13. So what year was it then? 41. That was 41 when they took my father out and did, shot him. Did you see it happen? I saw it, uh, uh, yes, through the window because we lived downstairs. And when he went out through the door and went down the stairs, and when he opened the front door, we all ran to the window behind the curtains and we saw him. What did he do? He just took, he had his gun in his hand, he just pushed my father against the wall and shot him. And he called the Droshkin, the Droshkin man, and he took my father onto the carriage and they went off. Where? I don't know. I think they went to the, most of the people at that time they used to take to the light uh, harbour, light tower. And that's where they shot most of the Jews, near the light tower. What, was your mother there when this happened? My mother was there when it happened. What did she do? She cried. She cried when one, one child after another was shot and disappeared. 
So the man that he talks about that turned up in the Latvian army uniform and, and took his father out the front and killed him, um, he says we called the Marash, um, which is the Arash commando that I just talked about, the Latvian paramilitary group that pretty much did the Nazis' dirty work for them um, under Nazi occupation. So just I wanted to kind of look into what happened to them after the war, most of the members of, of this horrible group, including the founder, Vigdarash, who it was named after, um, as a side note, because I know what happened to Herbert Zuckers, um, but I wanted to know kind of what happened to the rest. And I found that after the war, they were able to positively identify about 356 members of this commando. Um, and between 1944 and 1966, 352 of them were I looked up what they were charged with and sentenced to, and most of them it was, you know, between 10 and 25 years hard labour. Quite a number of them executed. A number of the executions were suspended. Um, but I looked up a few of the main players, and obviously one of them caught my eye because I know that Australia had quite a number of Nazis and Nazi um, sympathisers and those who worked alongside them who came out here and were relatively just able to go about their lives and Australia had a very laissez-faire response to doing anything about it, um, allowing people to come out here and immigrate pretty easily when other countries had a, a hard line. And one of them, um, one of the higher-ups in this group was a was a guy called Konrad's uh, Kalejas and he was a Latvian member of the Arash Commando. So after the war, he immigrated to Australia. He lived in my state. He lived in Melbourne. Um, he became an Aussie citizen very easily. And then he moved to the USA and got into the property market and made a ton of money and some property boom. And then the US, which is what happened with a lot of Nazis, um, Canada did similar. The UK did similar. Years later, after they'd settled there, and this happened with John Demjanjuk, who a lot of you may have heard of, and one day I'll do his story. It's quite complex. Um, they would deport this Conrad's Calais when they found out about his history in Latvia and he was returned to Australia because that's where his citizenship was at this point. Then he moved to Canada and they kicked him out of Canada when they found out about his history and they returned him to Australia. And then he moved to the UK and the UK found out about his history because a lot of them just kept their names and it wasn't because they didn't do anything wrong. My belief has always been it's because they're so proud they can't get rid of their name. Their name is everything to them. Mengler moved to South America and kept the name Mengler. <laughs> Um, despite the fact that he was on the run and he knew it and lived paranoid, basically in lockdown for the rest of his life. So when he was in the UK, the Home Secretary at the time, Jack Straw, he said that they were going to deport Calais, um and at that point in time when they said they were going to deport him, he returned to Australia. And the Simon Wiesenthal Centre, who I mentioned him earlier, he's a really famous Nazi hunter who was responsible for finding a lot of them um, up until, you know, just a few years ago. Um, he had been the one to uncover Calais's location in the UK because Simon Wiesenthal kept tabs on so many Nazis across the world and would bring it to government's attentions. And Simon Wiesenthal would criticise this decision um, because they said it was a missed opportunity to prosecute him in the UK because, quote, if he returns to Australia, he will benefit from the country's lax attitude towards Nazi war criminals, unquote, which, you know, 
is what happened ultimately. Now, I think that's why he probably chose Australia to immigrate to a few years after the war when he saw that we weren't doing a whole lot about it and to get to the other side of the world as far away geographically as possible from the crimes that he committed. Now, finally, in the year 2000, Latvian authorities decided to charge this Calais with war crimes um, and due to what he'd done in, in Latvia and particularly uh, labour camps and concentration camps in Latvia. And in May 2001, a Melbourne court ordered that he be extradited to Latvia. Now, of course, Calais appealed this decision and it kept on going and he kept saying, I'm too old and I'm too ill and I can't travel. Um, and he had he was getting dementia at the time and he had prostate cancer. Um, his lawyers said that he didn't have his, he didn't have a memory anymore, which a lot of people called into question. And finally he died pending this whole extradition in, in Melbourne in November, 2001. And when he was 88 years old, his lawyers said that the Australian government, um, they were critical of the Australian government for being quote, inhumane and callous in its bid to extradite a sick old man. Mm hmm. Yeah. So the leader of this commando, Victor Aris, if you want to know a bit more about him, I mean, you get a bit more closure with his end. He died in solitary confinement in prison in Germany, but only in 1988 and only after being tried and sentenced in 1979. So he still had decades uh, before they did anything about it. When he was right there, they could have got him at any point, but they were really going for like the big wigs for a number of decades after the war. Um, but somehow the man who used his hands to build planes, who seemed like an intellectual and appeared to not only tolerate but mingle with Jewish people in Latvia and who by now was a husband and father of four, he was now the man to fear in Latvia. This was Herbert Zuckers. And he acted, according to witnesses, not like he was taking orders and that he was reluctant, but that he was enjoying every moment of it, much like Irma Gressa. The Riga ghetto was soon established in a neighbourhood on the outskirts of the capital of Riga, much like the Jewish ghettos that Jews were moved into across other parts of Europe, most notably depicted in, in famous movies, the Krakow ghetto and the Warsaw ghetto. Jews were forced into the Riga ghetto in October of 1941, whole families in one-bedroom units. They were essentially the people who were living in these neighbourhoods before had their houses taken from them and they did a home swap with the Jews, as one describes it, where they had to move outside of what was now designated the Riga ghetto area where it was all barbed wire fences and bricked in so you could only leave with a pass which is you know depicted really well in the movie The Pianist and so they were moved out of their homes the non-Jews and the Jews were moved into what was the Riga ghetto and so essentially you were just swapping apartments and you couldn't take any of your stuff with you um, and you were often downsizing into what is you know a tiny I don't know if it's in Schindler's List or, or The Pianist. I think it's Schindler's List when they're moved into the Krakow ghetto. Or maybe it's The Pianist. Maybe his dad says it to him. They get moved into the ghetto and the dad who's, I think it's The Pianist, he, he's trying to stay upbeat for the family a lot of the time and and they they go into this little two-room cockroach-infested apartment in the ghetto and with their one suitcase each and... And um, the mum says, 
uh, can't believe we have to live here. And the dad says it, it could be worse. Um, I think it's Schindler's List actually. And then another two families walk in um, and it, yeah, it could be worse. Like you're going to be sharing it with like multiple families in like a tiny two room. Uh, just horrible. You had to get passes to work. Um, everything was kind of, um, you know, you had to get passes to do everything. Um, and essentially, like what happened with the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto, which is depicted really well in Schindler's List, uh, when they decide to quote-unquote liquidate the ghetto, as they put it, it's just a, a mass massacre where you're completely walled in, you can't escape, and they just go room to room, apartment to apartment, killing people. Um, now, today you can visit what is the site of what was the Riga ghetto, and there is a museum there which comes highly rated. So here's a few, just a few, and there's many of them, um, survivor accounts of Herbert Zucker's putting him there front and centre from different survivors. So if you believe the the professor that I read about earlier who said he never did anything, he said, oh, well, it happened, but Herbert Zucker's wasn't involved in it. Um, and he said something like, oh, I can prove it through documents. He wasn't even there, but he never, pr- he never says what the documents are or where he was. Um, it means that everything I'm about to tell you, these people are liars or com- or confused. And you've got to remember, again, Herbert Zuckers was like a national hero. They fully recognised him. And he would come up in many people's books that they would later write and memoirs. Um, so this is Ella Medallie. She wrote a memoir where she talked about Zuckers. Quote, I once saw from the window Zuckers arriving by car in the ghetto. He was drunk and could barely stand up. He snatched his gun. He started up the streets of the ghetto, bursting into laughter and drunkenly drunkenly shot at the terrified people like hunted wild beasts, unquote. Again and again, never have I seen so many accounts of people saying not only were the Latvian paramilitary group, the Irish, drunk constantly, which you just didn't get with um, the actual registered Nazi groups because they were expected to be sober and kind of upstanding. Like this would never have stood, for instance, um, the Nazis, you know, in pot in Krakow, stationed in pot, Krakow. But time and time again, survivors say that they were drunk. You know, they were just living wild, this paramilitary group that was working alongside the Nazis. And time and time again, survivor testimonies also talk about Herbert Zucker's like, just gleefully laughing, drunk, shooting at people, just full on enjoying it. And these people don't know each other to collaborate their stories or anything like that. So how do they all line up together perfectly? Um, another, another number of survivor accounts record him at what's referred to as a notorious villa. Um, in Riga. Uh, the address was 19 Waldemars Street. And this villa was where the Arash commando would regularly hold these wild, drunken parties. And he, there, according to a lot of survivors' testimonies, and they're quite lengthy, you can read quite a lot of them, they would torture and murder Jews. Uh, they would rape Jewish women. Um, and one man who gave 
an account of this. Um, this is a sworn statement before the Central Committee of Liberated Jews. Um, he had to work for Herbert uh, Zuckers at this particular villa. And so he saw firsthand many of the brutalities that Zuckers and his cohort would do. And he openly was employed by Herbert Zuckers. So again, like another person, unless he's lying or he doesn't know who his employer is, he knew exactly who he was. Um, and he said that several hundred uh, Jews were killed like in that villa. And he said that Zuckers personally shot several Jews at the headquarters and later in the ghetto. Another man called Mendel Vulfovich, his testimony, quote, Herbert Zuckers was one of the main leaders um, of the Jews' removal out of the ghetto and to Rambula, where they were all shot. Herbert Zuckers went about with his revolver and shot all of the laggards in the column, the old and the sick on the spot, unquote. So people were organised into columns to walk. And he means laggards, like people lagging behind. Now, what Mendel is referring to is a very famous event in Latvian Holocaust history. It's called the Rumbula Massacre. This happened on two dates, November 30th and December 8th, 1941. And long story short, about 25,000 Jews were taken from the Riga ghetto. Um, they were taken to a forest um, outside of Riga called the Rumbula Forest and they were basically murdered and put into mass graves there. It's it's one of the biggest Holocaust, atro Holocaust atrocities um, before the introduction of the death camps, including Auschwitz. Um, it it is only second behind Baba Yar massacre in Ukraine, which I have on my list to do at some point. So of these 25,000 people murdered, around 24,000 were Latvian Jews from the Riga ghetto and around 1,000 were German Jews um, who had been moved to the Riga ghetto from Germany and Austria and the like. They also, in survivor accounts, talk about them killing gypsies and the mentally disabled. You know, commonly, it's not just Jews. Now, I'm going to play you another testimony from Yad Vashem. This is a man called Stephen Springfield who survived the Holocaust in Riga and the Riga ghetto. Um, and this is courtesy of the US Holocaust Memorial Foundation um, website. So here you go. Thousands of Latvian and German police came into the ghetto, drunk, most of them drunk, shooting, chasing everybody out, Rouse, everybody rouse. Schnell, schnell. They chased everybody out. Whoever couldn't walk was shot in the spot. Children, women, elderly men on the street. And German officers were walking around and telling the elderly uh, and the weak and the ones who couldn't walk very well that they would provide transportation for them. They, it would be much easier for them. They provided special blue buses. At that time, we did not know what was happening to them. But they were chased through certain sections of town into the forest, a place called Rumbula. There, Russians prisoners of, prisoners of war had prepared large graves, mass graves, 
And when the people got there, they were so told to undress, put the shoe in one pile, the shoes in one pile, the clothing in another pile, driven to the edges of these mass graves and machine gunned. It was going on all night and the next day, 15,000 of our people were massacred in that particular day. Herbert was noted by many eyewitnesses who survived uh, the Rumbula massacre and the Axions in the Riga ghetto where they were rounding people up out of the ghetto and, and forcing them into this forest um, on the outskirts of Riga in order to kill them. He was noted by many survivors as giving orders to commandos under him because he was ranked quite highly um, on both of the dates where this happened uh, in the November and December of 1941. Um, back to the house that was kind of the HQ for, for this paramilitary group, uh, another witness, Max Tukasia, he was a young Jew. Before the war, he had known Herbert Zuckers um, because he regularly kind of mingled with Jews in Riga and was well known to them in their communities. Um, he'd known him for over a decade before the war, so he could be a pretty good eyewitness. Um, and he was taken to this villa. And while he was there, he saw Herbert Zuckers, quote, beat to death 10 to 15 people unquote. Um, Abram Shapiro, who gave his sworn statement, and I mentioned him earlier, um, he said, quote, um, the author had to work for Zuckers at Waldemarster 19. He there witnessed many brutalities committed by Zuckers against some of the several hundred Jews massed on the cellars of that building. Zuckers personally shot several Jews at the headquarters and later in the ghetto, unquote. So this is where I introduce someone who is kind of the antithesis of Herbert Zucker's, in my opinion, um, and will give way to part two. Uh, this is a man who now we know as Yaakov Midad, but he went by Mio as the nickname. So I'm going to call him Mio from now on. Um, and this would be kind of our hero if we're looking for one in this story. He was a member of the Mossad, which I'll talk more about on part two. Um, and he was known in the Israeli agency as the man with a hundred identities, unquote. He had been born in Germany uh, when he was 15 in 1934, like many families did. His parents had seen the writing on the wall and they had sent their son at the age of 15 alone out to Palestine um, because they saw what was happening with Hitler coming in in 1933 and a lot of people would send their children to the UK or the United States. And in some really cool stories, those would then join, you know, the US Air Force or the US Army and be the ones to come back in as Americans this time, to fight on the ground of the country that they were born in. There's so many stories like that. So he was sent off and World War II broke out and his parents were right. And Mio was uh, the first Jew from his area um, at this point in Israel to volunteer to serve in the British Army and to fight the Nazis. So he was no different to a lot of different people. He didn't just say, no, I'm over here now and I'm... Um, 
you know, staying out of it. He was boots on the ground going back to fight, you know, Nazism. And in turn, he saw a lot of really, really bad shit. Um, Unfortunately, his two parents, who were both kind of intelligent, well-read people, both died, uh, one of them in Auschwitz and I believe one of them in Theresienstadt, and he was their only son, so the entire family kind of wiped out. Um, And ultimately, post-war, he would decide, Mio would decide to join the Israeli Defence Force, and after a few years in the Israeli Defence Force, he would join essentially the secret service in Israel, the Mossad, and he would carve out a niche for himself hunting Nazi war criminals. Four years before he was tasked with hunting Herbert Zuckers in South America, he was a member of a team that many of you, if you watch Nazi Hunters, will remember this episode too. He was a member of the amazing team that apprehended the very high up ranked Adolf Eichmann, who had fled post-war to South America and had been hiding out in Argentina. Um, In 1960, they tracked him down and ultimately they kidnapped him and they brought him to Israel to stand trial. And you'll probably remember that because they essentially, and one day I'll cover his story, they It's very different to how it goes down with Herbert Zuckers. They essentially staked him out for a couple of days, figured out that he was living in a farmhouse in Argentina. They figured out what bus he was on every day to and from work. They essentially just pretended their car was broken down and they said, oh, um, you know, they got a couple of pictures of him. It was him who was identified as him. You can see the pictures, um, and they said, oh, the car's broken down. And, and when he stopped for a fleeting second, because he was quite a paranoid man at this point, Adolf Eichmann, they grabbed him and stuffed him into the car and put him on a plane, brought him to Israel to stand trial. He was ultimately found guilty and he was sentenced to death, which happened in 1961. Um, so this time around, four years later, obviously Mio is going to be one of the first people from the Mossad that they're going to going to ask to be involved in this. Um, mostly Mossad agents are anonymous. We don't normally get the full story of what happened because they go to their graves kind of not being able to speak about about things that they've done. They're essentially like the secret service. But this one's different because you can actually watch Mio being interviewed on Nazi Hunters, albeit in sunglasses and a cap. He has since died and they did release his proper name, but he went under a lot of different aliases at his time during the Mossad and each time he was given a whole new identity with a solid backstory and they left kind of no box unchecked. But this time around, the Mossad decided that there would be no kind of arrest and subsequent trial like had happened with Eichmann. They felt that it hadn't made the mark on the international kind of community um, or scared the existing Nazis living in South America and in other countries. They hadn't scared them enough. It hadn't made enough of an impact. Um, According to Guy Walters, who has written extensively on Herbert Zuckers and is interviewed on the show Nazi Hunters, um, Eichmann 
was a desk Nazi, as he put it. So Eichmann never actually one-on-one killed anybody, but his orders that he sent down would contribute to the deaths of millions because he was one of Adolf Hitler's kind of right-hand men. But according to Guy Walters, what made Zucker's different was that he had literal blood on his hands, according to thousands of eyewitnesses. So essentially the Mossad decided that Herbert Zucker's needed to be tracked down, befriended, lured somewhere and subsequently murdered. And this would make a statement to the world and to Nazis living in South America, be afraid, be very fucking afraid. And if the international courts are dragging their feet on this, we're not going to drag our feet on it. And Mio was the guy to do it. He spoke German. He looked like a very basic German businessman um, with his glasses and his little moustache. He was in his 40s at this point and he'd already done the Eichmann project in Argentina. So he was, you know, under a new identity. He was setting off to Brazil for this one, um, which is where Herbert Zuckers had found himself under his own name running a business in the 1960s. And how was Mio going to get at Herbert Zuckers and how was this going to play out? Well, you'll have to wait till part two for that. Um, I will be back in a few days with part two. It's really interesting. A lot of people say it kind of plays out like a psychological thriller of sorts. Um, I can't believe they haven't made a movie about this, actually. They've just kind of done the really good recreations on Nazi hunters and the like. Um, But on part two, we're going to talk about how Herbert Zucker's got away, where he found himself, why they were able to kind of find him, how the information got back to them from Jews living in the community in Brazil where he was, a very large country, what he was doing with his time, with his family and his kids all moved down there as well, um, and kind of the plot to befriend him, which would not be easy because Herbert Zucker's was always looking over his shoulder, much like most of the Nazis who were living down there at this point. So I'll be back then um, and I hope that you're enjoying this series and I'll be back then with the conclusion of this story.